still trying to figure out the logistics of uh, being uh, up on stage and when to not be on stage and all that. My step count was pretty high two weeks ago when I was going up and down the stairs, so we thought we would uh, maybe do something a little different today. But um, we've come now to the time for our sermon, and we are starting a new series this morning, which we're calling Meals with Jesus. And we're going to look at Luke's gospel, and we're going to key in on Jesus at meals. When he was eating and drinking. Um, and there's a, a book by a guy named Tim Chester called A Meal with Jesus. And he says that in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, he's at a meal, or he's coming from a meal. Isn't that amazing? He was going to a meal, he's at a meal, or coming from a meal. And I'm going to reference this book by Tim Chester quite a bit. Uh, in this series, again, it's called uh, A Meal with Jesus. I highly recommend it if you're a reader and looking for something to dig a little deeper and follow along, but I'll, I'll be quoting that a lot. And I actually want to start this series with a quote from how Tim Chester starts his book. And I want you to engage with this quote a little bit. He says, how would you complete this sentence? The Son of Man came, dot, dot, dot. And even just answer to yourself, like, how would you complete that sentence? You're talking to someone out in the street, like, all right, Jesus, the Son of Man came, why? What, 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 what? Fill in the blank. You might say the Son of Man came preaching the word. Uh, you might say the Son of Man came to establish the kingdom of God. You might say the Son of Man came to die on the cross. Those are all accurate answers. Chester says there are three ways the New Testament completes that sentence. The Son of Man came. Here's the three. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. They give his life as a ransom for many. It's one of the ways. Secondly, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. It's another one of the ways. Third way, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. That's the third way. He says the first two are statements of purpose. Why did Jesus come? He came to serve, to give his life as a ransom, to seek and save the lost. The third is a statement of method. How did Jesus come? He came eating and drinking. Meals are a big deal. We don't always think of them in that way, but much of Jesus' ministry was around the meal. And as we get started with this this morning, I want you to think about the most memorable meal experience you've ever had. And that's actually, if you look in your bulletin, that's one of the neighborhood group discussion questions for you to think together about this week as you gather up with your group. Mine was in March of 2015. I was working in college ministry and we, uh, Aaron and I took a group of college students from Kentucky to New York City on a mission trip. And so um, we were able to sneak away from our group in this mission trip uh, one night to go meet up um, with two friends of ours who were living in the city at the time. And these friends would definitely qualify as our cool friends. Everyone has cool friends that just look cool and they do cool things. These were those friends of ours, our super cool friends, that we just felt cooler by getting to be with them. Uh, but they made, they made reservations for us at 9 p.m., which is when you eat dinner in New York City, 9 p.m. at this Italian place called Perla in the West Village. Even saying that makes me feel cooler. Um, but we, 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 you know, we met them there. I remember, you know, riding the subway to get there. And, I, you know, was desperately following my GPS. Thankfully, I didn't have to carry a map around and really look like a tourist. But walk into this restaurant. It's this small, 
cozy West Village restaurant. Amazing ambiance. And our friends, they, they'd been there a bunch. They knew the whole menu. They knew sort of the background of the chef. And they helped us order. And that night, it was just this like sort of dimly lit, cool, vibey place. We had great conversation. Um, and to be there with my wife, Erin, and these two friends. I remember I had the scallops. The scallops were amazing. Um, the whole evening, beginning to end, it was perfection. And the center of all that was this meal that we gathered around. And around that meal was friendship and hospitality and laughter and catching up on life and, and deep conversation and wonderful sights and smells and flavors all around a meal in the West Village in March of 2015. A lot can happen around a meal, and we're going to see that in this passage. So with your own memorable meal in mind, I'm going to read for us from Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, 36 to 51, to 50, sorry. One of the Pharisees asked him, him as Jesus, asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. From the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And she said to her, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we do thank you for your word. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would meet us and be with us now as we consider it together. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, three headings this morning as we think about this passage. I want to talk about the setting of the meal, the scandal of the meal, and the forgiveness at the meal. The setting, the scandal, and the forgiveness. First, let's talk about the setting of the meal. We see this right off the bat, bat verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with them, and he went into a Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Okay, so if you back up just a little bit, earlier in Luke's gospel, Jesus ate with Levi the tax collector. And this was a really big deal because 
They, all the religious people thought that when he did that earlier in Luke's gospel that Jesus was eating with the wrong kind of people. You might be familiar with this. We actually looked at Matthew's rendering of that when he, with Levi the tax collector back in the spring. If you were around then we looked at that passage. And um, when Jesus ate with the, those wrong people, the tax collectors and sinners, um, the religious people, the Pharisees, that's when they said this. Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. Came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You might have heard Jesus say that before. That's Luke chapter 5, before our passage. And we hear that in Luke 5, we're like, yes, like that's my kind of Jesus. Tax collectors, sinners, he's eating with them, my kind of guy, I love it. Fast forward back up to our passage, Luke 7. Jesus also eats with self-righteous religious people. The setting is at the Pharisee's house for this meal. The Pharisee invited him and so he went and he reclined at table. Um, the Pharisees were the most influential religious people of the day, very strict about obeying the law. They even added extra laws around the law to make sure they didn't even get close to breaking what they thought was God's law. And they weren't just really strict on following the law themselves. They were adamant that everyone follow it in the same way that they do. And they were pretty harsh in trying to get people to do that. And in return, Jesus had some significant words to them but this dinner party that this Pharisee host it was a proper Middle Eastern dinner party this likely would have been a nicer home uh, with some sort of courtyard dining situation that opened up to like a public space um, where others could actually see what was going on and who was at the meal so maybe a modern day example would be like the front yard hangout um, where you're you're let's say you're walking through your neighborhood and you, you walk by a friend's house and maybe they have some friends hanging out in the front yard. Maybe there's like a little table set up with, uh, with some drinks and some apps or whatever. And you can like, you see who's there at this little front yard hangout. You see the food that they're eating. And maybe you're walking the dog by and you're able to kind of stop and step up on the front yard for a minute and talk to your friend and see what's going on. But there's this, there's this element in which it is sort of like a dinner party thing happening, but there's also a public element where you could kind of walk by and see it. That's similar to what was going on here. There was a public element to this meal at the Pharisee's house. And this played into who showed up at this party. Who was there? Let's talk about the guest list. All right, so we have the Pharisee who is hosting. Later we're going to find out his name is Simon. Likely some of his Pharisee friends, which who doesn't love a good party with some Pharisees, Right? And Jesus was obviously there eating, and in walks this woman of the city. She's described as a sinner, and she hears that Jesus is at this dinner party, so she walks in. Now, it could be that this woman was a prostitute. The text doesn't tell us. Some of the language used throughout this passage has that connotation to it. Um, but whatever her story was, it is clear that she was publicly known as a sinner. It was part of her reputation. And I want to just pause there and acknowledge that that might really resonate with you. Uh, maybe in big or small ways where, where sort of some big public mistake or thing you did or thing you said or sin feels like it's kind of your reputation. I think back to some of the things I did in high school, some really big mistakes I made. And it just feels like, especially when you're a kid in school, word travels so fast, right? You do something that you're not proud of and just everyone knows about it and you just sort of feel like you're walking down the hall and everyone's looking at you thinking about that thing that they heard you did you sort of feel like you are your reputation um, and that highlights 
something um, about this woman. She had a reputation because of her sin. So people would look at this woman of the city and think, oh yeah, 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 we know about you. We've heard about you. We know what you've done. We know what you're up to. And this is actually a theme in Luke's gospel where Jesus has a heart for those on the margins, those with reputations, people like this woman. She's a prime example of this. And this is who Jesus eats with. Self-righteous religious people and people with publicly shameful reputations. And in this meal, it's not just a meal. This is how Jesus did ministry. Um, He didn't have office hours. He didn't have really clean-cut ministry programming. There's nothing wrong with clean-cut ministry programming. I hope we have lots of that in the future as a church. But that's not really how Jesus rolled. He talked to people. He befriended people. He got invited to meals. And he went and ate with them. And then these life-changing things would happen around a meal. Things that would get recorded in the Bible and passed down all the way to us. Tim Chester says in his book, he says, Jesus spent his time eating and drinking. A lot of his time. Here we go. His mission strategy was a long meal stretching into the evening. He did evangelism and discipleship around a table with some grilled fish, a loaf of bread, and a pitcher of wine. Um, If you attended college, it's um, likely that you've walked through an activities fair before where all the organizations at the university have tables out and they're giving away free things to try to get you to be interested and, and join their organization Um, When I worked in college ministry, we did this. I was like a grown adult with children at tabling events with college students lots of the time. And what we realized over the years was when we would give food away at these tables, that was when we would get the most attention from students because apparently college students are the hungriest, you know, group of people out there. But we would have, you know, food or snacks or candy or whatever on our table and they would come and they'd say, hey, you know, do you want some of this candy or whatever? Um, Not in a creepy way, but we would ask that question. And, um, and, and they would say, yeah, yeah, sure. I was like, okay, uh, but let me tell you about the organization I'm a part of. There was a catch. It wasn't just a meal. It wasn't just food that was being offered. Something bigger was happening in that moment. Namely, I was trying to get them to come to my ministry, to come and validate me and come to my ministry. Um, I remember one year as a kid on vacation, um, we heard about this free breakfast and, you know, it's family on vacation, right? Free food. That, that's a big deal. So, so we go to this free breakfast, and, and this free breakfast happened to be, be put on by somebody, this organization, uh, selling uh, timeshare vacation properties, right? And so we ate this free breakfast, and we just had to sort of endure the sales pitch of buying timeshare property from them. And I really didn't know what timeshares were as a kid, but I learned a little bit more that morning. But that meal, it wasn't just a meal, right? There was something else happening in the midst of that. They, namely, they wanted us to buy some properties off the coast of Florida. All right, if you're married, think of when you got engaged and you had the, the sort of uh, really important first meal where your parents dine with your future in-laws. And there's all this buildup of like, how's this going to go? How's this going to go? And you sit around and you share a meal together. And there's likely we could raise hands and share stories about that first meal, right? But it's not just a meal. There's more happening at the meal than just the food itself. A meal with Jesus isn't just a meal. There's something more happening when Jesus dines with this Pharisee and encounters this woman of the city. This is the setting of the meal. What's the scandal that takes place? And this is going to help us to see what Jesus is doing here. Let's talk about the scandal of the meal. Uh, There's this really intimate moment in our passage. 
What does this woman do to me? Look at verse 37. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. To slow down and read that ought to make us squirm a little. Um, So the table would have been in the center. Jesus' feet, the the guest's feet would have been actually pointed out sort of away from the table. You kind of would lean in onto the table to dine, but the feet would have been away. So she came and kneeled down behind him on the ground. Um, She took her hair down. And if you think about what's happening here, this is not something that could have taken place over like a few awkward seconds. You know when things are awkward and seconds feel like minutes, right? This is not a few awkward seconds here. Um, this, she had to cry. She had to produce tears. She was moved emotionally and the tears would have to begin to drip down from her cheeks, down her chin, onto the feet of Jesus. And then she let her hair down and then she began to wipe just her face really close to his feet with her hair wiping the feet of Jesus, wiping the tears off of his feet. This is not just a few seconds. Just imagine the silence in the room where these mostly Pharisees at this dinner party are watching this woman of the city with this reputation let down her hair, cry, and wipe the feet of Jesus. And what's Jesus doing? He's sitting there, presumably looking at the woman, just in silence. It would have felt shockingly intimate. It would have felt inappropriate. It would have felt scandalous. Because in this cultural context, it would have been exactly that. Um, Listen to how I was reading in a a commentary and this commentator quoted a female missionary friend that is in the Middle East who is there present day. And she wrote him, the commentator, about her understanding of this passage having lived for a long time in the Middle East. And I want to read what she says about this. She says, the point that really struck me about Jesus' response to the woman was its complete departure from what was socially acceptable. She says, I'm not sure if one can really begin to grasp how shocking it was unless one has spent enough time in the Middle East for its attitudes to start melding with their own. She said, the reality or appearance of a woman being unchaste outside of marriage is the worst sin a woman can commit here. The most important asset she has as a woman is her reputation. The whole honor of the family hangs on the reputation of its women. If a woman has nothing but her reputation as a chaste woman, she always has a chance to succeed. If she has everything but her reputation, she is lost before she begins. And in some parts of the Arab world, all it takes for a woman to lose her reputation is to be seen speaking to a man who is not a relative. If a man, particularly a religious man, is known to have even spoken with such a lost woman, his reputation will follow hers down the drain. It is a hard system and it crosses religious lines. Now consider the same system but take it back 2,000 years to a less forgiving time. Think about Jesus' encounter with the sinful woman. Shocking, isn't it? It's hard to think of a modern day comparison. I was thinking about it this week and I thought back to middle and high school and we had this rule, no PDA. There was no PDA. PDA stood for public displays of affection. And I was thinking about this, you know, I've got a middle schooler now, and so I asked my daughters, I said, um, do y'all have the rule, no PDA? And they're like, Dad, what does that mean? 
I was like, it means public displays of affection. She was like, never heard of it. And I was like, oh no, what is happening? Um, you felt the awkwardness of a couple showing their affection for one another in public. We've all felt that. Sometimes it's endearing, and pretty quickly it just gets uncomfortable. Um, in this passage between this woman and Jesus, there was nothing romantic or nothing impure about what was happening between Jesus and this woman. Nothing impure, nothing romantic. Um, it was actually a beautiful act of faith and worship from this woman. But it was shockingly intimate. And Jesus goes with it because he knew her heart behind it, which we'll see here in a moment. But how does Simon the Pharisee respond to this shockingly intimate moment? Let's talk about the Pharisee's response. Look at verse 39. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. So he's saying, hey, this is proof that Jesus isn't who he says he is. Because if he was a prophet, he wouldn't associate with a woman like this. Because prophets don't do that. He would have known she's a sinner. Um, the religious Pharisee would have seen this woman of the city as one of those people. As a sinner. And if Jesus was really a true prophet, then he should have known better, right? Than to let this woman come into this space and to touch him like that. Um, the thinking of the Pharisees would have been something like, yeah, 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 like down the road we'll include her once she cleans herself up and gets her act together and does things the right way. But, but not right now, not with this reputation, not for how she's known. We'll include her later. But look at Jesus. He's the one who has at the same time the patience to eat with difficult self-righteous Pharisees. And he has the grace and mercy to sit with a woman of the city in the same meal. And he's not ashamed to be seen with either. Um, this intimate moment at the meal, it shows us something about the Pharisee and the woman. Let's talk about the forgiveness at the meal. Um, classic Jesus fashion around the meal. Something happens. He capitalizes on the teaching moment. And what does he do? He tells a story. That's how Jesus liked to teach. Let's talk about the story. Look at verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Okay, pretty straightforward, right? Um, Simon the Pharisee even gets it right. The one who has the larger debt canceled is, is going to love the forgiving moneylender a lot more, right? The greater the debt, the greater the gratitude and love when it gets canceled. All right, super quick story, very much to the point. But in that, it exposes two views of sin. What are the two views of sin? Let's talk about that. Jesus tells us, verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Jesus just said a whole lot with a few words. What he's describing here are customary hospitality rituals that would have expressed love for the guest. 
This would have been like our, hey, welcome to my house. May I take your jacket? Can I get you something to drink? Have a seat. Make yourself at home. That's what would have happened. That's what Jesus is describing here. Um, But this would have included a servant washing the feet of the guest, anointing them with oil, giving, greeting them with a kiss. Again, it sounds really unusual to us. That would have been common in this cultural setting. And Jesus says, Simon, this is your place and you didn't do any of those things for me. But yet this woman has done all of them. And that says something about both of your hearts. What it does is it exposes how they think about sin. And so for this woman, she knows she's a sinner. She knows it. Apparently everyone knows it, right? It's mentioned three times in this whole passage. But she also knows that there is big forgiveness for big sinners. And because she has seen her massive debt removed from her, she loves big. And we see that big love poured out at the feet of Jesus. I have an older uh, pastor friend who sort of functioned as as a mentor in my life for about the past 12 or so years. And Uh, About six years ago, both of his knees got really bad. Just a lot of pain in his knees all the time. He he had to stop exercising. He could barely walk. Um, Eventually, he just couldn't take it anymore. And so he scheduled knee replacement surgery on one of his knees. And so he gets the surgery done. And even, I mean, I'm talking like days after he had the knee replacement surgery done. I was sitting with him and he said that he, it was like an instant game changer like the pain was gone he felt instant relief so much so that he scheduled surgery as soon as he could on the other knee and he got the other knee done but for him to get both of his knees done it was an absolute game changer it was years of serious nagging pain and then instant relief it was an amazing feeling for him this woman in our passage likely carried nagging guilt and shame for years. She had a reputation. She knew it. Everyone knew it. Just nagging guilt, shame. It was just who she was until she experienced the forgiveness of Jesus. And what she is now crying tears of relief at having that guilt and that shame removed from her. Big sin. Big forgiveness. And then big love as a result but then the contrast is Simon the Pharisee little view of his sin therefore little to be forgiven and therefore little love for Jesus or this woman and we're invited into this text to think about our own sin and our own experience of forgiveness Um, the bigger our sin is to us the greater our experience of forgiveness in Jesus will be And the greater our love is going to be for God and for other people. That's sort of the formula that we are given here. Um, But if we have a small view of our sin, we're we're just not really going to feel our need to be forgiven. Forgiveness isn't going to be that big. And therefore we're not going to have a big love for God. We'll have a small love for God. And that's going to shape how we treat other people. We're going to have a small love for other people. I wonder who you can relate to more. You may feel like the woman of the city um, where your sin, your past, something you've done, your guilt, it's sort of all you're known for. It just feels like the dark cloud that's always over your head, everywhere you go. You just feel dirty, like you just can't shake it. Your past kind of lingers over you. Um, If this is you, 
Do you see that Jesus is not afraid to get close to you? Um, He's not ashamed to be associated with you. He's not ashamed to be misunderstood and to hang out with you. He looks at you like he did this woman and he says, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Because he loves you. He actually cherishes you as he cherished this very woman. Um, And so he says to you that you are not your past. You're not your mistakes. You're not your sin. You're a beloved child of God. He's not ashamed to be with you. You may feel more like the woman. You might feel more like Simon the Pharisee. Where it is just kind of your default mode to to kind of look down on others and their sins. And other people's sins seem um, worse and more dramatic than yours. And you kind of like, if you're honest, you generally feel pretty good about yourself. You feel like you kind of got it on lockdown a little bit. If this is you, do you see how big our sin is in this passage? It's much bigger than we think. And, and the way forward is, is not, it's not to work harder. It's not to, to create more structure and rules to do more, to perform better. The way forward is actually to learn from the woman who is on the other side of the table sitting at the feet of Jesus. Weeping at the relief of her forgiveness. Think about this meal. Put yourself in the place of Simon the Pharisee at this meal. You actually have the opportunity to get up from the table and to walk around to the other side of the table and to kneel down next to the woman. Imagine how differently the story could have gone. Simon the Pharisee walks around the other side of the table, kneels down next to the woman, and he actually he, he, he sits next to her and maybe he gently puts his arm on her shoulder and maybe he, he puts his hand next to her hand on the feet of Jesus and he begins to wipe the tears off of Jesus' feet next to the woman. There's actually an invitation, if you resonate more with Simon the Pharisee, to learn from this woman of the city and to see how she has experienced the reality of how big our sin is and to experience the forgiveness that is offered in Jesus. Um, And by the way, if you relate more to Simon, guess what? Jesus still wants to come have dinner with you. He still wants to come and sit with you. Jesus not only loves the woman of the city, he also loves self-righteous Pharisees. Uh, thinking back to my meal in New York City, it really was unforgettable. When I think back on that experience, one thing stands out. Aaron and I never could have afforded that meal. We just never could have afforded it. I don't even remember what the prices were because I didn't look. I have no idea how much that meal cost. Um, But it wasn't even in the realm of possibility. Actually, I didn't even know that restaurant existed before I got there uh, for that week. And even if I did know about the restaurant, I wouldn't have known what to order or or how to do it. Certainly couldn't have paid for it. The entire experience, uh, the invitation, the hospitality, the bill, all of it was covered by our two friends. They took all that on themselves in order to enjoy this experience with us. You see the experience the invitation that's offered to you this morning to come to this meal with Jesus. He is inviting you, and he's the host. He's made all the arrangements, and he actually gave his own life to pay the price to have you at that table. And all you have to do, accept the invitation, come take a seat at the table, and he's going to cover the rest. Won't you come to him and feast with Jesus today? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for good news that you forgive sinners. You forgive real sinners 
who commit real sins. And you are willing to associate with people like us. And Father, you know our hearts. You know if we resonate more with the woman of the city. We feel like all we are is our sin and mess-ups and mistakes and reputation of our past. Or you know us if we really struggle with self-righteousness and judging others. Father, you know where we're at this morning. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to feel the weight of our sin. And as we feel the, what is really crushing weight of our sin, we would feel that burden lifted by you, Jesus. And we would feel the relief of forgiveness that this woman experienced. And we respond with big love for you and for each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Speaking of a meal, we're going to